0: The first question that God asked after the story of the Garden of Eden is recorded in Genesis chapter four, verse six. In it, God asks a man called Cain one simple question. Why are you angry? Cain and his brother Abel compete with one another. Cain is jealous of Abel for all that he is and all that he has and he doesn't seem happy with how Abel's life is progressing when Cain compares it to his own. And as a result, he gets angry and he kills his brother. Anger always leads to death. When it's unchanneled, when it's unbridled, When it's uncontrolled, it will eat you and it will eat everyone around you. I'd like to read with you for a moment some of the words from that early story. Genesis chapter four, verse one. Now the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel for his part brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to Cain, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one came upon him. No one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Even when the story, when the reality of what happened is heartbreaking. Why are you so angry? We could ask that of so many people, couldn't we? Why are you so angry? And the results of anger in Cain's life are the results of anger in all of our lives. When it is an anger that is misplaced and misguided. We wander. We are lost. We feel increasingly under threat. We become increasingly secure. We become increasingly paranoid. We find ourselves unable to celebrate anybody else's good fortune or blessing or grace. And eventually we die or we exit the presence of God, just as Cain did. We live not in a place where God is not, but we can no longer feel his presence. We can no longer experience his presence. We can no longer enjoy his presence because we've closed ourselves off to him because of the anger and the resentment that we feel. Over the last eight or nine weeks, we have looked at various issues on a Sunday night that we can live free from. I commend them to you on our Facebook page if you'd like to hear them. Living free from sorrow, living free from anxiety, living free from worry, living free from regret. Tonight, I want to spend some time exploring with you what it would mean to live free from anger. And as I do so, bear in mind, as twee as it might sound, that there is only one letter's difference between anger and danger. If you live in a perpetual state of anger, your soul is in danger. Your family is in danger. Your life is in danger. So often, in the words of C.S. Lewis, our families can become one of the most dangerous places for our children to be. No wonder many of them can't wait to get away. Because they are surrounded by angry parents. They are parented in anger. I don't know whether you are an angry person or not. But I pray that God will take what I have prepared for this evening. And that he will speak into our hearts. And if you, you came to this meeting or you're joining it online angry. That God will open your spirit and soul. And you will find a way out. I have great hope that God is able to touch and minister to people here tonight by his grace and mercy, if we will let him. Of course, anyone can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that's not within everybody's power. And it isn't easy. I'd like to claim that I said that, but it was Aristotle. (laughs) Or to put it in language that you may be more familiar with. Bruce, is it Bruce? I think it's Bruce Bannerman. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Green. Muscles bursting out of us, eyes bulging. That's definitely not something you'd want to see in me. Clothes ripping off their back. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Anger is sometimes dramatized. It's sometimes made to feel as if it's an exciting thing. But anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. It will eat away your insides. It will eat away your joy, it will eat away your hope, it will eat away your peace, and it will eat away your ability to rejoice in other people's blessing and what God could be doing in their lives. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you that are not yet in the family of God, we live in an angry culture. Europe is an angry place, the world is an angry place. The politics of anger have overtaken the conversations of the United Kingdom and North America and Hungary and France and Germany. I can't ever remember there being so much vitriol and resentment in public discourse and debate about what it means to be alive and to be a citizen. I don't mean just here in Northern Ireland, I mean across the world. And the Bible doesn't say that we should never get angry. It doesn't say that anger is entirely wrong. Jesus got angry. If you turn with me for a moment to the Gospel of John, it's in the New Testament, the fourth book, chapter two, I'd like to read you just a couple of verses from it. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, "'Take these things out of here. "'Stop making my father's house a marketplace.'" His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years or it was built 46 years ago. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus goes into the temple, a place built for the worship of God, for the honor of his name, and he sees it being abused. He sees people being excluded. He sees the religious people making money out of the poor. He sees them exploiting those that are not allowed to get in because they're not good enough or they haven't got the right money. He sees tax Changers, money changers, charging exorbitant rates so that they can buy a temple coin in order to buy the right doves. And he gets angry. There's a time to get angry. We should be angry at oppression. We should be angry at injustice. We should get angry at cruelty. We should get angry at sin. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army in the 19th century in the Albert Hall was asked, what is it that has sat at the center of your life? How have you kept going? And just a few days before he died, in front of thousands of people, he said that he had seen the oppression and the darkness in England. Somebody once said to him, why did you invent the Salvation Army? Why was it born? And he said, because there was no church for the poor in England. Is there a church for the poor in the United Kingdom tonight? Do you still have to be middle class to come to church? One of the great things, actually, and I don't mean this as a disparaging comment on any other traditions, but one of the great things about the Elam Pentecostal Church, and you don't hear me very often talking about that with that whole title, do you? Admit it, you've hardly ever heard me say It's that we were a church that was established for working class, ordinary men and women. And most of us, if we're honest, were found by God in places that many religious people would be embarrassed to go into. Trailed up, given hope and life and grace. I hope we're always like that, that we never get too posh, you know that we're always able to celebrate the grace and the mercy of Almighty God. Here's what William Booth said with anger in his voice and determination just a few days before he died. I'm getting angry at this jolly thing that's around my ear. That's not what he said. <laughs> he said, while there remains one dark soul in England, I'll fight. While men and women go out of gin houses, I'll fight. While one child goes hungry at night in a home in England, I'll fight. While people are dragged into prison and treated badly, I will fight. I'll fight to the very end. There's something about a righteous anger that we should seek. A desire to stand up and to be counted. A number of years ago, I was involved in a visit to India. And a friend and I were looking for two children that had gone missing. We were helping the Indian authorities and I was helping some churches in Mumbai with some theology and training around engaging with the poor. Thousands of churches and hundreds of thousands of Christians. And we were looking for two little boys it became clear that these little boys were not going to be found alive. And it turned out that their father had sold them for a couple of pounds each to a building contractor. And the building contractor had thrown them alive into the foundation of a building as a sacrifice to the gods so that the building wouldn't fall down. And my friend and I stood and wept at the place where their bodies had been thrown into a pile of concrete and said, this is wrong. Something has to change. And a movement was birthed called Stop the Traffic. Not so long ago, 15 or 16 years ago, I was involved in um, uh, going into Birmingham to help to find some girls that had been trafficked and had gone missing. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. We went into a building opposite a church and on the church outside the door on the wall it said Jesus the light of the world. The building across the road was in complete darkness. It was a brothel and inside it were cages no bigger than four foot by eight foot and there were five of them down one side of a room. And two of those cages I will remember until the day I die. In one of them, there was a 14-year-old girl for sale for 10 pounds. In the other, there was a 7-year-old girl for sale for 20 pounds. If we don't get angry at that type of thing, there's something wrong with us. Something should rise up in us at the injustice and the pain and the sorrow that exists in the world. There's a righteous anger, but so often our anger is misplaced. We get angry because we've been slighted, angry because we've been ignored, angry because we're not getting our own way, angry because we're being insulted. Somehow our anger gets inverted and it becomes about us. Dave Peltzer, an author who went through terrible child abuse and wrote his story in a book called A Child Called It, writes this about his life as he grew up. Inside, my soul became so cold, I hated everything. I even despised the sun. For I knew I would never be able to play in its warm presence. I cringed with hate whenever I heard other children laughing as they played outside. My stomach coiled whenever I smelled food that was about to be served to somebody else, knowing that it wasn't for me. If we're not careful, entitlement breeds a deep sense of anger in our hearts and in our lives. And it displaces the righteous anger that God wants us to have and becomes an all-consuming thing. There are a number of Greek words in the Bible used for anger. The most often used is a verb which has at its root the word orgitso, And it means to be angry, to be enraged, to feel and express strong displeasure and hostility. It can range from petty small-minded anger to the righteous anger of God towards sinful disobedience. In Matthew chapter five, verse 22, a passage from the Sermon on the Mount that we've been exploring, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is or gets so angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. But in his story about being harsh and unkind, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 34, about a master who was unkind, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. And then he says that God will be like that. God knows righteous anger. In one story, Told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. He told a parable of a man who owned a vineyard. And he sent workers to help with the vineyard to collect rents that were due. And the people that were looking after the vineyard didn't want to pay, so they beat them up. So he sent more workers and they beat them up too. And he sent more workers and they beat them up. And then eventually he said, I'll send my son. They'll not beat him up. And then the story, they murdered his son. Clearly pointing to what would happen to Jesus. And in the story, the king is the father and the son is the Lord Jesus. And here is what Jesus says about what will happen on the last day. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. There's nothing unholy about God's anger. There's nothing misplaced. There's nothing driven. He never loses his temper. But there will come a day when God will face every part of the creation and he will put right everything that's not been right. And he will ask all of us what we have done with his son. It's a challenge for us to think of God's anger. And yet, it's even more challenging when we think of our own. I want you to turn with me for a moment to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. This is the story of a man who says to his father, Give me everything that I'm entitled to. I want to go and spend it and enjoy it. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. Most of you will have heard of it. You can read it from Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through to the end of the chapter. In the story, The father gives the son everything that he wants. He gives him his inheritance and the son goes off and he squanders it. He wastes it. He ends up as a Jewish man eating pigs well and living amongst pigs. What a terrible state to end up in, don't you think? And he says, I'll go back to my dad's house because I'd rather be a slave there than die here. And he goes back and his father sees him and receives him and restores him and forgives him. He puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, a cloak on his back, and they have a party. But his big brother's not very happy. Verse 25. This is what happens. Now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, do you notice that? Not my brother. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, Was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he has been found. Same Greek word for anger, but this time completely misplaced. This man is jealous and resentful and angry because he feels hard done by. He has a sense of entitlement. He shouldn't be getting this kind of treatment because he left, he failed, he's a waster. We need to be careful. Because God restores this man, he loves him, he brings him back, he forgives him, he, he celebrates and he tells his son that is angry, don't you see, you're always going to be with me, you're not going to lose a single thing. But because of his sense of entitlement, because of his hurt, he can't hear what his father is saying to him. I don't know what your issue might be with anger. God displays it. God expresses it. But we are guilty of it in all the wrong ways so often. There's only one time in the whole of the New Testament where temper is used. Some people just say, you know, it's just me. I've got a short temper. Can't help it. We can help it. When Paul as an old man writes to the young pastor Timothy and Titus, he wants to help them understand what leaders should be The only time in the Bible that the word for quick-tempered is used. In Titus chapter 1 verse 7, speaking of the responsibilities of eldership and of those who lead churches. Paul says to Titus, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent and he must not be greedy for gain. This is serious stuff. I wonder how your anger expresses itself. I wonder if you're a woman or a man, this isn't just something that affects men. That isn't able to control your anger. If you don't get your own way, if you lose an argument, if something is going against you, if you feel... As if you're being forgotten. How do you deal with it? I look back over my life as a father and I think I've lost my temper too many times. Probably the only one in the room that ever has. (laughs) Maybe not. I'm not one of those people. I'm always a bit suspicious of them that say, if I could go back, I wouldn't change a thing. Oh gosh, I would. (laughs) Who would change something if you could? Who would take a word back? Who would take a sentence back as a mom or as a dad? Sometimes I listen to people preaching and they paint this perfect picture of their lives and how they've been. And I think, do you know what? I, you, I. <laughs> so if we're all in this boat together, how do we deal with it? James chapter one, verses 19 to 20. Jesus' half-brother Talking about this very issue, says this You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then listen to this killer verse For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. You can't force God to do something because you're angry. There's the root of a lot of our anger. If I get angry enough, God will intervene. Not any amount of anger in Malcolm Duncan can make God change his mind about something. I cannot twist his arm. The only thing I lose is my own peace, my own joy. Ecclesiastes, probably written by King Solomon, chapter seven, verse nine. Do not be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Oh dear, these are difficult verses to read. Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. Never, beloved, avenge yourselves. I love the fact that Paul begins it by beloved. It's like he says, I love you. Now listen. (laughs) Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Proverbs chapter 22 in the New Living Translation, verses 24 and 25. Don't befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people, or you will learn to be like them, and you will endanger your soul. So, where does this all lead us? How do we overcome anger? Well, there's a couple of things I want to say about this first. I can tell whether you're an angry person by the company you keep. As the New Testament says, bad company corrupts good character. Do not develop deep, meaningful friendships with Christians who are angry all the time. Don't cut them off. Cut off their anger. And I want to say something to you as a a church family because I have grown to love you so profoundly. I think it's because I rejoice in the fact that you're stuck with me. (laughs) Don't hurt this company of people. Be careful of what you say. Be careful of your temper. I've already been just five months here and I've seen episodes of temper in the foyer here. Not drastic things, not terrible things that are going to destroy us, but little things that are not good for us. Be careful that your heart is in the right place. Find yourself in the right situation. Develop healthy friendships. It's very easy. What would happen if we as a church said, we're not going to do gossip. We're not going to do anger. We're not going to run people down. We're not going to react like that. We're just going to refuse it. And what if tonight we looked at each other and said, I give you permission to call it out. I give you permission, if you hear someone at a table saying, oh, I hate that Malcolm Duncan, I hate that Jonathan McCaig, I hate that Kelsey Hume, I don't, any of you, I hate that Ian, I hate that Alan, I really hate them. They get on my nerves, I don't like them. What if we had permission just to go up to them and say, that's my brother you're talking about. Why would you say that? Have you said that to them? How long do you think it would last? How long do you think you would last? (laughs) We could kill it in a month. We could change the culture of any community in a month. You could do it simply by saying, I'm not listening to that. I'm not going to be part of that conversation. I'm not going to allow that to filter into my life. And I'm not going to allow it to filter into my church. But how do we overcome it? I think, first of all, we've got to get to the source of it. Often there are difficult reasons for anger. We do feel hurt. Life has treated us unfairly. Somebody has got promoted above us. The thing that we wanted to happen hasn't happened. It's not as straightforward and twee as saying that we should just always get over ourselves. Sometimes a deep sense of hurt can leave a very profound scar. I've experienced that. Being treated unfairly, being told that you're not wanted, Or love itself being unfair, someone betraying you, someone letting you down, someone telling you one thing and doing another. Our lives end up rooted in insecurity and fear, and the only the only way we and that's what produces anger because we're uncertain, we are insecure, we are frightened. We're like caged animals. But listen to me. Eventually. If you don't deal with that, it will lead to you being angry at God. Just like Job's wife was. Who would blame her? She lost everything, her children, her home, her wealth, her security, her reputation. And she turns to her husband and she says in Job chapter two, verse nine, curse God and die. She's angry at God. She's angry at how her life turned out. Can I ask you pastorally, do any of our lives turn out the way we expected them? Get to the source of your anger. The symptom might be the person in front of you, but the source might be a hurt from 30 years ago that you need to talk through. It might be the fact that somebody's getting away with something and you don't want them to. Which fundamentally means that you don't think God can see. That you're finding it difficult to believe that God will sort it out. You see, unbridled anger doesn't change anything. It only steals our joy. And as James tells us, it leads to a deeper and deeper resentment and anger and pain And it eventually hurts the people around you and it hurts you. Someone very close to me lost everything because of anger. A brilliant, talented, gifted, wonderful man, full of potential. And he died an alcoholic and alone. He lost his family. He lost his job. He lost his home. He lost his friendships. He lost his self esteem. He lost his purpose. He lost his way. And eventually he lost his life. That's what anger does to you. Steals everything bit by bit until there's nothing left. There's only one thing that could have saved him. And there's only one thing that will save you or me giving it to God, letting him have it, laying it at his feet, and saying, I can't carry this anymore. Surrendering control of our lives to God is the only way out of the cycle of anger. Angry because of comparisons. I'm not the same as my brother. I'm not as gifted as her. If I'd only been a better wife or a better husband or a better leader, why do they get things and I don't? Angry around being accepted or rejected. Angry around isolation. Angry around negativity. Negativity. All of those are in Cain's story, and all of them in one way are in ours. So how do we deal with it? Well, number one, recognize it. Acknowledge that there's an issue. Don't run away from it. Don't pretend it isn't there. Don't think that you can sort it out on your own. Recognize it. Recognize that that temper is impacting your marriage. It's impacting your workplace It's impacting your health. And secondly, reject it. I don't want to live like this anymore. I have had enough of it. I'm not going to feed the lie. I'm not going to allow it to control me. Thirdly, repent from it. To repent is not to be remorseful. It's not to be regretful. It's to turn away from it. Put better boundaries around your life. Allow people to come close in. Talk to a friend. Tell them what you're experiencing. Ask them, will they pray for you? Recognize it. Reject it. Repent from it. Give it to God. Release it to him. Lay it at the foot of the cross. It struck me the other day, you know, not that I'm being pernickety because I think this is a fantastic building, but there's no cross in here. Is there? I'm not suggesting that we're less of a beautiful building for that reason. But leave it at the foot of the cross. I'll explain why in a minute. And at the foot of the cross, receive grace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says this, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing rather than, rather let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you. Paul's given us the answer. Receive grace for that issue. Receive grace for that relationship. Receive grace for that resentment. The best bit of advice that we were ever given as we got married was from an old friend of ours in Falkirk in Scotland. And they kind of smiled at us with a half squint and said, never let the sun go down in your wrath. Never go to bed in an argument. Anybody else been given that advice? Talk it out. Needless to say, over the 25 and a half years that we've been married, we've had many late night conversations. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say normally it's my fault allow yourself to talk it out with the people that you love but there is an answer it's the most fundamental answer the most beautiful answer that I could give to you you see At the cross. After having been wept and laughed at and mocked. Jesus Christ said, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Every bit of resentment poured out on an innocent man. Every ounce of anger laid on him. Every evil word, every cross thought, all of it carried by the only one who didn't deserve it. He had every right to be angry. And according to a prophet called Isaiah, he didn't open his mouth. When they slapped him in the face, he didn't slap them back. When they stripped the robe from his back, he let them do it. The most fundamental answer to our anger for me... Lies in two or three observations about the cross. The first is that this innocent man didn't fight back. And when I think that I put him there, I run out of words. The second is that his father didn't collapse the universe around him because I would have. I saw one of my children with one whip on their back. I would collapse the world around them to save them because I don't love anybody enough to watch that happening. But God. The creator of the universe loved you online and in this room enough to withhold his hand and not get angry. To manage it, to channel it, so that you could know an end to your anger, your pain, your resentment. I can't understand such love. All the theology in the world will never explain it to me. Not because of you, but because of me. I know my own dark heart and I am beyond comprehension that God would love me that much. On the cross... God becomes God-forsaken. The sinless one becomes sin. The man of peace carries our anger. He absorbs our pain. He lifts our sorrow. And he pays our ransom and our penalty and carries the anger of his Father. We're told in the Bible that the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son Another word for the wrath of God, the anger of God. It wasn't that he didn't get angry. It's that he took all of his anger at you and at me. And his son said, let me have it. Let me carry it because I want them to be free not just of their sin, but of this grip of anger and hatred and resentment and pain. How can we look at that and not be melted? One writer has put it this way, our tendency in the midst of suffering is to turn to God, to get angry and bitter and shake our fist at the sky and say, God, you don't know what it's like. You don't understand. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't have a clue how much this hurts. The cross is God's way of taking away all of our accusations, all of our excuses, and all of our arguments. The cross is God's way of taking on flesh and blood and anger and sorrow and pain and looking us straight in the eye and saying, Me too. I carried it for you. And if we can get that right in our heads and in our hearts. As hard as this might sound for some of us to understand. Here is the truth. Written by another Ulsterman. C.S. Lewis. Born just down the road. Apparently there's now a square called C.S. Lewis Square. It wasn't called that when I grew up here. In a book called The Great Divorce addressing the issue of anger and pain and sorrow and suffering. He says this, all loneliness, all angers, all hatreds, all envies, all itchings, everything that hell contains, if rolled into one single experience and put into the scale against the least moment of the joy that is felt by the least in heaven would have no weight that could be registered at all. Bad cannot succeed even in being bad as truly as good as good. The Apostle Paul put it this way. I count all of these light afflictions as nothing compared to knowing him. I grew up an angry young man. I was angry at the world. I was angry at my parents. I was angry at my school. I was angry at where I lived. I was just angry at everything. I was going to change the world and show everybody that somebody like me from somewhere like I came from was just as good as any of the rest of you. We socialists. We angry man. The first Sunday night of February in 1986, I got on a bus. It was a smelly, broken down thing. And went to a Church. And I remember getting on the bus. We lived on a hill, 84 Glen Avenue, for when you want the blue plaque. (laughs) None of you even know what a blue plaque is. (laughs) 84 Glen Avenue, Rathcool. It was in the middle of a hill. Didn't even like our garden because the ball would roll down it. (laughs) I got on this bus and I remember looking out the window at the house and thinking, "I, I hate where I live. I hate everything about my life. And I went to church and I got saved, for those of you that aren't used to that language, I was born again, I was converted, I had an experience of God, I became a follower of Jesus, whatever language suits you, it happened. And I got back on the bus and I went home. And I remember getting off the bus and feeling different about where I was. I didn't hate it anymore. How did that happen? How did that happen? Nothing changed about where I lived. My mother didn't change, my father didn't change, the wobbly garden didn't change, the house didn't change, the school didn't change, my exams didn't change, my friends didn't change. Nothing changed. But when I went back, I didn't hate it anymore. I'll tell you what changed, me. God reached into my soul and plucked something out. And I began to change. And that change is still going on tonight, 30 odd years later. So if you're watching online and you think, I can't get rid of my anger, God can do it. If you're sitting here thinking, I am trapped, you are not trapped. God is able to reach into your soul and put a new person in there. A man called Donald Soapley, Soper was a Methodist preacher. And he um, used to go to Hyde Park Corner in London every um, Saturday morning and preach. And one Saturday morning in the 1960s, when communism was on the rise and there was a lot of political dissent in England, there were a load of people listening to him. He was talking about new life in Jesus Christ. And an old fella was standing who had been homeless and he was in a dirty old suit and smelly. And a communist that was heckling Donald Soper Shouted out, ah, Dr. Soper, what are you talking about? He wasn't from Belfast, but he was for tonight. <laughs> what are you talking about? What can Christianity do for him? Soper said, what do you mean? And this fellow said, communism can put a new roof over that man's head. And I can put a new suit on that man's back and I can put a new table in that man's kitchen and new shoes on that man's feet and new food on that man's table and a new bed for that man to sleep in. What can your Christianity do? And as quick as a flash, Donald Super said, my Christianity can put a new man in that old suit. No one else can do it. No other religion can do it. No politician can do it. No community project can do it. No amount of coaching and loving and caring can do it. Only God can put a new man in you. And he has the power to put a new man into your life, fellas. Relax, women. He has the power to put a new woman into yours. But you have to let him. No one is beyond God's grace. If your heart is thumping tonight and you're thinking, I want this new life, then grasp it with both hands. If you're a Christian struggling with hatred and anger, ask God to do another work of grace in you. Doesn't need to convert you again. Ask him to release another wave of his spirit in you and let grace rise in your soul. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to be quiet because I am done and you're fed up listening to me. But I could tell you about this God all night. But you must make a decision. Your anger or freedom. It's your call. Let's pray. None of us are exempt from this. Help me to live a different life, Lord. Set me free from anger. The right bits, the righteous, the holy bits of anger that I feel at being betrayed or hurt or abandoned, I give to you. Help me to trust that you know what you're doing. Help me to let you be the person that makes the final decisions on these things. I'm not going to pretend anymore that everything's okay. I'm giving it to you, Lord. I'm laying it at the cross. I'm asking you to set me free. I'm asking you to give me the grace to live for you, to have a different center. I give you the struggles, the sorrow, the pain, the anger, the resentment. I give it all to you. And I choose to obey your word by the power of the Holy Spirit to trust that you are able to take those things that have nestled in my heart and put root down and break them by the power of your grace. And if you're a person that's never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I'm gonna pray for you. And if you wanna commit your life to Christ now, join me in praying this prayer silently. Lord, I come to you and I lay down the roots of anger and bitterness and resentment that I have felt I am sorry when I have become judge, jury, and executioner. When I look at Jesus and see what he has done for me, it melts my heart. I'm embracing the cross. I'm turning away from everything else. And I'm asking you to sort out everything that's going on in my life. Help me to live for you by your power and by your glory. Set me free from everything that has held me. If you've prayed that prayer tonight online, could you please contact us by emailing my colleague, Pastor Pip. His email is pip at dundonaldelam.church. Just let him know that you've made that decision. We've had people do that and he'll be in touch with you to give you support and help. If you're a young person and you make that decision tonight online or in this room, come and see Pastor Davey. Talk to him and let him know the decision that you've made. If you want to talk to Pastor Pip about your decision at the end, come and talk to him. He'll be at the um, reception desk on the way out. Pick up a brown envelope if you need one. Let us help you live free. Let us help you discover life and grace and hope. But if you've prayed that prayer tonight in this meeting, if you've committed your life to Jesus, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to be able to pray for you. Would you put your hand up, please, so that I can see it and I can pray for you? Is there anyone here tonight? Have any of us brought those that don't yet know Jesus Christ? Have you come in and anger has been controlling you and you want to be set free? Thank you so much. Take your hand down. What a remarkable thing. Is there anyone else? Doesn't matter what age you are, God is interested in this decision. Thank you for your grace at work in this gathering, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would continue your work by your grace in our lives and in our hearts. Help us not to leave this building without being made right with you and let your grace and your mercy pour over us in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Brothers and sisters, first of all, let's welcome that person that's made that decision to commit their lives to Christ into the family of God, shall we? i came back to northern ireland i've led somebody to jesus christ what a remarkable thing that is you don't even is that is that not what we are here for i had this feeling that the church was supposed to be (laughs) rejoicing in that type of thing Uh, and i wonder who you love enough to pray into the kingdom go into this next season, we are in the most remarkable season of our lives. Let me say to you, I've been in ministry uh, for um, 30 years. I've never been in a situation where a church is growing as quickly and as strongly as this one. So what Pip said earlier on about baptism and membership and getting behind what God is doing and the vision that we have to share with you as God shares it with us, this is a great time to be involved in the life of our fellowship. God is at work. And some of you have seen the highs and the lows here. Thanks. Thanks for keeping praying. Thanks that you didn't give up. Thanks for giving. Thanks for believing that God hadn't finished with us yet. And in the words of the book of Haggai, the latter days are going to be greater than the former days. And in this place, God will grant his peace. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Don't rush away. By the way, I just want to say, we didn't announce it earlier. We did in the morning service. Philip and Anne Johnson are having a little baby. How exciting is that? It's wonderful. We're praying for you. Um, I'm always available for cuddles. I love children, but I couldn't eat a whole one. I'm looking forward to that. May God bless you and guide you in that. And in all the sadness and sorrow of those that we are losing, we're rejoicing in those that are being added to us too, aren't we? Let's sing a song of celebration and worship to Almighty God. Don't rush away. Stay tonight for a cup of tea. And I'll see you on Wednesday as we explore 1 Peter. Come to this Bible study. It's amazing what God's doing. Let's worship God together.